You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So I thought it was very appropriate, really, in light of what we've just been talking about, as well as this story that we've been following in the life of Joseph, to um, share this with you. And maybe you've heard this before, but it's called the pit. Someone fell into a pit, and they couldn't get out. So a subjective person came along and said, "Ah, I feel for you down there. And an objective person came along and said, well, it's logical that someone would fall into a pit. A Pharisee came by and said, only bad people fall into a pit. A mathematician came by and calculated how the person fell into the pit. A news reporter then walked by and wanted the exclusive story on the pit. A fundamentalist walked by and said, you deserve your pit. A self-pitying person came by and said, huh, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. An optimist came by and said, well, things could be worse. And then a pessimist came by and said, things will get worse. And I thought that tied directly into this story we've been hearing about Joseph because here's a man who has been in an incredibly deep, dark pit and things keep going from bad to worse for him. And this is a familiar story to many of you, but for those who who this might be new to, this is the true story of a man by the name of Joseph who, out of jealousy and really hatred, his brothers sold him into slavery. He was taken to a foreign country, Egypt, where he did not know the language or the culture or the customs. It's incredibly difficult for us to even begin to understand what that must have been like for him. Sold into slavery in a foreign country, He gets hired, so to speak, or I guess bought, by a man by the name of Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard. He's a very important royal official in Pharaoh's leadership. And he begins to go to work for him, and God blesses Joseph. And he rises to prominence in the employment of Potiphar until Potiphar, at one point, puts him over his entire household. He just entrusts everything to Joseph. Clearly, God's blessing is on him. He's gifted in leadership. He's got incredible integrity. He's trusted. And then Potiphar's wife begins to make advances towards Joseph. And he tells her, no, 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 over and over again. And then finally, through a series of circumstances, she frames him. And she spins this story to make it look like he actually did try and make an advance towards her. And so Potiphar imprisons Joseph. And now he is languishing in prison. And if you were with us last week for the passage that precedes this, Gary Brashears took us through these two men who were imprisoned as well, who come to Joseph, the cupbearer and the baker who served the Pharaoh. And they say, hey, we had these dreams. What do they mean? Joseph interprets those dreams. And what he said exactly takes place. And you'll hear more about this in greater detail in the passage we're going to look at today. But he's still left in prison. So he has been languishing there for years. He has been in this incredible pit. And we looked at the reality last week that sometimes when you're in a pit, the breakthrough that you're hoping for doesn't come through. So what do you do when that happens? That's where we were last week. But now the breakthrough that Joseph has been hoping for is going to happen beyond his wildest dreams. His life is about to radically change. And what we're going to see from last week to this week is whether you're in the pit 
or whether you're at the pinnacle of success and your wildest dreams have come true, there is a continuity and a consistency and a depth to Joseph's character in how he trusts and relies on God that runs through the whole story. Whether he's in the pit or at the pinnacle, there are some things in his life that remain the same. And I think we can learn from that. I think there's something very much there for you and me. So if you have a Bible, take it out, turn to Genesis 41, or turn on your phone or tablet, however you get there. I will read the passage to us. We're going to work our way through it like we usually do. And then we're going to pull back and look at some things that I think are applicable for you and me. So Genesis 41, when we pick up the story here, when two full years had passed, two years since he had interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cup bearer, Pharaoh now has a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood behind, beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. This is a weird dream. And then Pharaoh woke up. Well, he falls asleep again, and he has a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. And we know about the east wind, right, here in East County? That's a freebie for you. The the thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads, And then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. And in the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Now, I don't know how you're wired. Are you one of those people who, when you have a dream, you can remember it in great detail the next morning? Many of you know I am not that person. I've told you that before. It's probably because I'm a little shallow. But when I go to sleep, I figure I've got a job to do and I do it. And when I wake up the next morning, I don't remember nothing. I can never remember my dreams. My wife, by contrast, when she has a dream, she remembers it in vivid detail. And she can talk through the whole thing, and we oftentimes do. I, I guess I'm shallow. I don't know what my excuse is. I don't remember any of my dreams. But you've probably had the experience where you do have a dream that is vivid that is unwelcome, and that is troubling to you. And that is certainly true here for Pharaoh. He has two in a row. And there is significance to this. Because in the ancient Near East, and especially in Egyptian culture, dreams were highly regarded. They were widely understood as being a message from the gods, and you needed to pay attention to them. And to have two in a row was especially noteworthy and significant. And in fact, Joseph himself will call attention to this when he's talking to Pharaoh later on in our story. But that two-dream thing is a thing that we need to keep in mind. So then this happens. The chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew, Joseph, was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh 
Not a happy ending, right? So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And of course, another way to say this, as Gary helped us see last week, the pit. He was quickly brought up from the pit. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I can't do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And we have to understand this doesn't mean, hey, Pharaoh, you're going to get whatever you want. No, what this is saying is that Pharaoh is going to get an answer to the dream, and it's going to set him at ease because he's going to know what they meant. It doesn't necessarily mean he's going to like what they mean. So Pharaoh says to Joseph, In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. And we've heard this, right? After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. This is a weird dream. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. And then I woke up. And then in my dream, dream number two, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, But none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. And then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. I think one of the most powerful frames of reference for this, to appreciate what Joseph is telling Pharaoh here and the reality of what's being talked about, is to think about the Great Depression. There was an entire generation of folks who grew up during the Great Depression and we're losing many of, the, many of those folks. Many of those folks have passed on. But over the years as I've talked to those folks, there is a common frame of reference and that is because they were born during the Great Depression, they do not remember what preceded it. It was called the Roaring Twenties. It was a time of abundance and prosperity for many people in our country. But because these folks had been born in the Depression, it shaped their worldview forever. And they never really remembered what came before the Great Depression. There was just the Great Depression. And that's what this is being talked about here is this famine is going to be so severe, no one's going to remember the seven years of abundance. And there's something really interesting here as we're reading this story, and it's what's missing. Why is this famine happening? Is it because of a judgment of God? And the answer is no. Nowhere does it say this is God's judgment. It's, it's just a thing. It's going to be a thing, but it's a thing. 
If people had bumper stickers on their camels, you know, as they rode them back then, it would be famine happens, right? I knew I shouldn't have said that. Or maybe they said, you know, got wheat with a question mark. But the issue is, oh boy, I need to move on. The issue is, this is going to be significant. It is going to be, for the known world at the time, a famine and a disaster and a crisis for everyone. But look what happens here. Joseph is going to go beyond what Pharaoh asked him. Pharaoh asked him to interpret his dream. Joseph just did this, but now Joseph is going to offer this. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Remember, we said there's significance to two dreams. Joseph is going out of his way to say, hey, because there were two dreams that mean the same thing, this is happening And now this is where he goes. Let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This is a really wise plan. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. This plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials because it was. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. And there's a lot swimming around here. We'll just get in and out on it. He uses the same language that Joseph just did. Who did Joseph say Pharaoh should look for to lead this? Someone wise and discerning. And that same language comes out in Pharaoh. Basically, what Joseph was doing here was writing his own job description. And Pharaoh looks at him and says, yeah, that's a good idea. You're the one. And what's interesting here is he is acknowledging God. And this is the general name for God. This doesn't mean he knows Yahweh, the one true God. But this does mean he gets that there is a God in his multiple God-thinking worldview that is standing behind Joseph and blessing him. And he recognizes it and he wants to get in on it. So he hires him. You will be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. In one sentence, Joseph goes from being a prisoner to the prime minister of the country. It is astounding. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, and he put it on Joseph's finger. So he just gave Joseph his authority. He dresses him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He gives him a uniform of authority. He had him ride in a chariot. There's the limousine. As his second in command, and people shouted before him, here comes the secret service, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So here's this picture of Joseph now riding through the streets of Egypt. And what that literally means when it says make way is bow the knee. And literally now everyone in the country is bowing the knee to him out of respect because he is second in command. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zapaneth Paneha, which we have no idea what that means, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. What we do know from what this says is two things. Number one, Joseph just married into power. 
This is a very politically powerful family because his wife was a priestess of one of the Egyptian gods. So this is a very prominent, very important family. And there's something that's happening here for those of you who are familiar with your Old Testament that makes us begin to think forward into the Old Testament to the book of Daniel. Do you remember when we went through the Daniel series and when the Jewish exiles were carried off to Babylon and especially the Egyptian, excuse me, the Jewish leadership began to become Babylonized by Babylon. They changed their names. They dressed them in their clothes. They began to change their customs to make them thoroughly Babylonian. And that is what Pharaoh's trying to do here. He's trying to make Joseph fully Egyptian by changing his name, marrying him into this politically powerful family. But at the end of the day, Joseph's fortunes have entirely changed. And we'll skip forward to this. Before the years of famine came, Two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim, or Ephraim, depending on how you want to say that, and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So Joseph has two sons and he names them forget and fruitful. How would you like that to be your name? But it's connected the deep meaning of him recognizing what God is doing in his life and the blessing of God on his life. It's remarkable. And we don't have time to go through the rest of the passage, but everything Joseph predicted through those dreams comes to pass. Seven years of abundance, all this grain is stormed up. So much grain they couldn't keep track of all of it. They just stopped keeping records. And then seven years of incredible famine that literally affected all of the known world. And folks, this is not fantasy or fairy tale or fable. This is world history. This actually did happen. We know this happened. And this is all taking place on Joseph's watch. So let's begin to pull back from this. There are so many things here that we can look to and learn from. But we see this idea of Joseph waiting on God. Now let's reset things. When Joseph was in the pit of prison, he was waiting for years and years and years in hope that he would someday somehow gain his freedom. And we can understand that. And we looked at that last week. Clearly, he's, he's waiting on God. When you fall into a pit, that's what you're doing, right? Is you're hoping, praying, anticipating that God will somehow pull you up out of that pit. We can understand waiting in God in those circumstances, but I would submit to you, he's also waiting on God in these circumstances. He waited on God in the pit, but he's also waiting on God at the pinnacle of his life. Think about this. He goes from being prisoner to prime minister in this exchange with Pharaoh. His life radically changes. He is at the apex of what everything in that culture would have said is success. He is second in command in the most powerful country in the world at that time. He's now married. He now has a family. He has kids. He has prominence. He has affluence. He has everything that any culture would have said in that day and age is success. And yet, does he have everything? And the answer is no. Why does he name his son forget? Because there is a pain in his heart in life that he would like to try and forget. He doesn't know if his dad is dead or alive. He hasn't seen him in over 13 years. He doesn't know what's become of his brothers. Will he ever see them again? 
Is there ever any chance of reconciliation? Then some of you are right there. There is difficulty and heartache and struggle and dysfunction and conflict in your family. And you wonder, is there ever going to be reconciliation? Is this ever going to get worked out? Or are things always going to be this way? But clearly, there is unfinished business in Joseph's life. And I would submit to you, especially as we see the rest of the story in the coming weeks, that he is waiting on God for this as well. Even though he has everything, not really. And the same is true for you and me. You may have come in this morning in a pit. You may have come in at the pinnacle of your life where you look at your life and everything's going really well. I would submit to you in either one, you're still waiting on God because no one has everything they want. So while we're waiting on God, what do we do? Because what I would also submit to you is waiting on God is not something that's passive. It's kind of counterintuitive. When we think about waiting, we think of passivity, but not at all. When you wait on God, it is an active waiting. It is an anticipation of what God's going to do. But it also means you don't do nothing. It means, actually, that you continue to follow God, to trust God, and, yes, to work for God. Let's take this for a test drive as well. When you come to the place in your life where you fall into a pit, and because we live in a broken world and we're broken people, Sometimes by our own choices, sometimes by choices absolutely not related to us, we find ourselves in a pit. What do you do? And please understand, yes, there are seasons where there is crisis and pain and heartache and difficulty, and you truly are debilitated. You are hurting, and there are probably going to be seasons like that for you in your life. I'm not talking about those seasons, but I am talking about our propensity when we're in a pit to make life all about us. We can be that person who comes up to someone else who's clearly in a pit and say, oh, you should see my pit. Mine's way worse than yours. But we can become selfish in our own pit, in our own pain and difficulty and heartache, not choose to recognize and realize there are other people in pits as well, and life isn't just all about us. How do we reach out to them? How do we love them? How do we serve them? Or the other extreme, where we are at the pinnacle, like Joseph, where we get, really, everything we've ever wanted. And at that point, we can choose to make life all about us as well. We can be selfish in either place, in the pinnacle or at the pit. Because think about this with me. What is your pinnacle? What, What would that look like for you? And you fill in the blank. Well, if I won the lottery, okay. Or if I had all the money I ever wanted, okay. Or if I could just get married, okay. Or if I had the health that, I, that I've always wanted. Or, you know, we can fill in the blank with whatever we want to, but I would submit to you that even if you get that, what God wants for you is not just to make your life all about that, but to continue to follow him and work for him. Because what does Joseph do? He has everything proverbially he could ever want. He's still serving God. He's still working and using his gifts and using what God's given him, not just for himself, but to be a blessing to others. I had a vivid example of this, and you give me vivid examples of this as a church family all the time, every week. But this last week, I was struck by this in particular. Um, One of our folks, her name is Susie Falk, was going to have hip surgery this week. And I was calling her because I'm kind of standing in for Pastor Jerry Smith, who's our community care pastor. He's out, so I'm covering the pastoral care basis for him, and I don't normally 
I am able to do this, but I was going to go visit her before her hip surgery the next morning. So I called her and said, hey, Susie, you know, how are you? I'm fine. And we started talking about the surgery, and she said, oh, well, I'm coming into the building. You caught me in the parking lot. I'm coming in the building right now. I said, great, I'll come talk to you in person. Hung up, came downstairs, and started talking to her. And we shifted gears from her surgery to what she was doing there. And I said, Susie, what are you doing? And she said, well, my friend and I came in to do some, some last vacation Bible school, you know, clean up and work and what have you. Now, you need to understand, Susie, she's 73 years old. And I know 73 is the new 33, but <laughs> despite that, she's got a bad hip and has had a bad hip for a long time and is in constant pain and is in this pit and has been in this pit for a long time. And yet the day before her surgery, she's in here serving our church family and our community. And I thought, you know what? When I grow up, I want to be just like you. And I was struck by this woman who is choosing to serve. And I could, I could name a number of you who do the same thing, but it was instructive to me. At the pit or in the pinnacle, God still calls us to follow him, to trust him, and yes, to work for him and to be concerned about others and to serve others because we look for opportunities to declare who he is, what he's done and what he's doing. And Joseph does that through this entire story. Think about this. When Potiphar's wife comes after him to try to get him to sleep with her, to try to get him into an affair, he says no, not just because it would wrong his master, Potiphar, her husband, or that he would, might lose his job or even lose his life, which he could have. But what did he cite as his main reason? I can't wrong my God this way. I'm not going to wrong my God this way. When the cupbearer and the baker come to him in prison and ask him to interpret their dreams, what does he say? Well, I can't, but God can. What does he say throughout this story with Pharaoh? I can't, but God can. He constantly is looking for opportunity to declare who God is and what he's done and what he will do. It's incredibly powerful. And I think it's an example for us. We do this with one another. We do this with those who don't know the Lord. So many of us make it weird when it comes to talking about God or sharing our faith or whatever you want to call that. And we think it has to be this formula or it has to be done this way. No, how about you just talk about what God is doing in your life? Our, our friend Tim Clark, whose life will celebrate this Friday at his memorial service, this is going to stick with me for a long time, but a couple months ago, we were talking, and this happens all the time with you, and it happened with him. I'll call you as one of your pastors to hopefully encourage you, pray for you, and the, the opposite happens. I'm the one who leaves encouraged and, and blessed, and that was sure true with this conversation with Tim. I'm talking with Tim, and he's going toe-to-toe with cancer, and it's hard, and he's in constant pain, and life is difficult, and he says, you know, Jay, if I have to suffer to know God better, then this is worth it. I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to go through this if it means I trust God more, I depend on him more, he's more real to me, I can love him more. He said it's worth it. And once again, I thought, man, I hope when I grow up someday I'm just like you because that's someone who gets it. That's someone who declares what God is doing even when it's difficult. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to who are we following 
And that's in many ways what worship means. It is the direction, it is the orientation of your life and mine. You're all living and I'm living for something or someone. Sometimes it's many someones, many things. But at the end of the day, God calls us to live for him. And Joseph was doing that even at this point in his life. He worshiped God in the pit, but he also doesn't forget about God at the pinnacle. He's worshiping God as well. And this is one of the most significant hints we have to this. What does he name his kids? Does he give them Egyptian names? No. He names them forget and fruitful, which I know is kind of funny to us, but that's what those names mean. But those are Jewish names. Scholars agree that it's really clear that those kids were Yahweh worshipers. They will grow up and they will choose to follow the one true God because their dad teaches them and trains them. In fact, there's a number of scholars who believe that quite possibly Joseph's wife, who is this priestess of this false god of the many gods that the Egyptians believed in, that she eventually chooses to become a Yahweh worshiper because Joseph refused to let the culture shape and determine his identity in the course of his life. He chose to worship God. Do we live in a culture that is constantly looking to reshape and reform and redefine and challenge and change what we believe as Jesus followers? And the answer is yes. That's an easy one. Of course it is. Our culture is constantly challenging and trying to shape and redefine what we believe. And we don't have to look very far to see examples of this. In fact, it's for this very reason that in September, we're going to steer into one of the hot spots in our culture right now, and that's sexuality. We're going to devote an entire series to walking through what does God's word say about our sexuality? And I've never looked more forward and wanted to do less that series that's coming in September. But we could do this with anything. Our relationships, our other relationships, our stuff, our money, our time, our priorities. Our culture has these values that it's constantly trying to press us into. And we don't see Joseph allowing that to happen. He stays true to his God He anchors himself to what he knows to be true about his God, and the same is true for you and me. And in fact, we have an advantage that Joseph didn't have in that. And that is, if you have received Jesus Christ into your life, if you know him as your Lord and Savior, then his spirit lives within you. He gives you the very power and ability to live the life of trust and faith and, yes, blessing that God promises you. You and I have the Holy Spirit. Christianity is the only worldview that teaches that God himself wants to get so near to us that he literally comes and lives inside of you through his Holy Spirit. No other religion, no other worldview teaches that. And that's why we can anchor ourselves to passages like this and realities and truths and practicalities like this. This is in the New Testament in the book of Galatians that says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that is an ongoing process whether you find yourself in a pit here this morning, and if you're not there, at some point you probably will be, or whether you're at the pinnacle of your life. 
Who are you worshiping? Who are you following? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. And I deliberately left this last part out of the story that we started with. But now we're going to return to it. Remember I read you the pit? We won't go through the whole thing again this time. But someone falls into a pit, they can't get out, and these series of people come by. The subjective person comes by and says, oh boy, I really feel for you down there. The objective person, well, it's logical that someone would fall into a pit. You know, the mathematician calculating how that person fell into the pit. The optimist, oh, things are going to get better. And the pessimist, things are going to get worse. And then Jesus comes by. And seeing that person in the pit, he takes them by the hand and he lifts them out of it. You see, the reality is Jesus went into a pit on our behalf so that you will never have to go there because he did. Because the Bible teaches that we all start out in the same place. We're all broken. And relationship with God is not found by trying to be a better person or doing this or not doing that. That's empty religion. And it leads to one of two places. You will either be arrogant and think you're better than you really are or you'll never quite know are you good enough. Christianity, the Bible, rather teaches we all start out in the same place. God loves us despite our brokenness and selfishness. He offers us this incredible right relationship with him if you will reach out and grab it and make it your own. And it's a right relationship you can have because Jesus Christ went into the pit of death by his crucifixion, by dying on a cross, but then he rises again to new life. And he did that on our behalf. And it's a gift of God. You don't earn it. You just receive it, but you've got to receive it. There's a defining moment where you choose to make that reality and this relationship your own. It is not by coincidence that you're listening to this or the folks who will be listening online are listening to this. This God will come after you again and again to invite you into this right relationship with him. And he is far more patient and far more persistent than you and I would ever be. But at some point, he will stop asking And he will let you have what you want. And if you want to live your life apart from him, you can. But you are going to be missing out. And someday, you will not spend eternity with this amazing God who has loved you and literally sacrificed himself for you so you don't have to settle for that. But you will find yourself eternally separated from this God and you don't want to go there. He wants to bless you. He wants you to experience his love. So will you? That Jesus Christ doesn't make you necessarily a better person. He makes you a new one because he changes you from the inside out to be who God always created you to be. And with that comes blessing and joy and hope and peace and presence. And even when you're in the pit, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this God is with you. And even if you're at the pinnacle, this God is with you. And there's nothing better than living life with him and knowing him. So I want to pray his blessing over you now. Lord, as we prepare to go from here, Thank you that we don't leave here alone, that for those of us who know and love you, for those who are listening online, that God, you are with us wherever we are. And so we ask that you will enable us to live the very life that you call us to, that we would trust you and follow you with whatever circumstances we find ourselves in because you are the one true God who promises never to leave us or forsake us, but to go with us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So go and live for him.
Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.